Hey everyone, happy 2023. This is Scott, and I'm back to bring you another year of conversation with documentary filmmakers. Today I talked to Zachary Levy. First, a few words about Levy himself. This is a guy who embodies the qualities required to be a filmmaker. He's a hustler, for one, in the best possible sense of the word. He has a bias to action, and most importantly, he has the guts to bet on himself. Note the stuff I haven't mentioned, the storytelling, the technical chops, the knack for building trust with people. Livy's got all that stuff too, but as we've learned on this podcast, those are table stakes in the world of filmmaking. Levy toiled for a decade to make and promote the film Strongman. It was released in 2009. It's a loving, unvarnished look at a fringe celebrity, a New Jersey scrap metal hauler named Stanley Pleskin. Pleskin moonlights as stainless steel and calls himself the strongest man in the world. Pleskin is also cinematic gold. He's a direct-to-video superhero. Yes, he bends pennies with his bare hands, but it's his humanity that makes him so watchable. Today, Levy sits down with me to reflect on a film he began two decades ago. Quick note, he spoke to me from his apartment in New York City, and as such, you may hear the soundtrack of the city in the background. Cue the sirens. So, Zachary, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, first of all, I want to note this is a film that was released a good time ago, I think 11, 12 years ago. And I, I want to thank you for going in the time machine to kind of revisit this film. It's been a long time for you. But let me ask first, how did you stumble upon Stanley? Um, he is a documentary filmmaker's dream. Well, I had been working as a cameraman for many years, and um, I had uh, one day just got a call from a stunt show. It was a, a show called uh, You Asked For It, um, which was on NBC, I think, for... It, there was an old version of it. I think it was a show that uh, existed in the 1960s or 70s, perhaps. Um, but there was a, a one- or two-season revival of it, and... Um, I just got a call for a camera gig uh, to go film a stunt at the Princeton airport. And I had gone down to the airport and Stan was standing in between two Cessna airplanes uh, with ropes tied to each arm. And they were pulling in opposite directions trying to take off. And he stopped the planes from moving. And it was, it was obviously, it was this incredibly scary stunt, uh, very dramatic, um, more dramatic in a lot of ways than the kinds of stunts he does um, in the film and on our on a regular basis at that time. Um, and, you know, that obviously caught my eye, but it was really like just in talking to him afterwards, it was like almost, it was, I would say it was almost instantaneous that, you know, within 30 seconds of talking to him, um, there was a connection between us and I kind of just knew that there was a lot more there than just this stunt. Had you wanted to be a documentary filmmaker prior to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was looking, I was looking for films, uh, to make at that point. Um, um, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say it was like I had wanted to be a documentary filmmaker so much as I knew I was, I, I thought of myself as a documentary filmmaker and, um, the, and really I think that the, um, you know, I had been doing camera work as, a route to, you know, keep my muscles sharp, to, um, to, to, you know, 
as a way to make a living in the field that I wanted to do. But, uh, I mean, that was actually part of it too, in the sense I was, I was working for, I, at the time I was doing a lot of day gigs, you know, was, and, and some of them were good gigs. You know, I was working for 60 minutes. I was working for Oprah. I was doing the, doing the kinds of things that, you know, had, um, you could put on a resume and you could say, Hey, I, I, you know, a lot of people saw this thing that I shot. Um, but you know, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, it was, it was close enough to what I wanted to do that I think I could have almost convinced myself that, that I was on, I was doing what I wanted, you know? Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the reason I got into any of it was really because I wanted to make films and, um, and so I recognized that, that it was like, okay, I can keep on doing what I'm doing, but it's not a hundred percent of really what I want to aim for. So, um, so, you know, I had probably about a month before I had met Stan, I had written down on a, a list of, on a piece of paper, maybe about 10 or 15 ideas for films that I was, I wanted to make. And I didn't, um, you know, there wasn't, any one of those that immediately stood out as being better than the others. Um, it was really at that point, I think, okay, I need to prove to myself as a filmmaker that I can make a film, you know, that I can make a feature film and that I, cause that's what I want to do. And, um, I remember like cutting up those slips, those, the, all those ideas in, on little strips and like placing them into a hat and literally just picking one out of the hat because that's what it was. It was like just an exercise, like, okay, you got to do this for yourself. And at the end of the day, a filmmaker can make a film about a lot of subjects. It doesn't need to be the perfect subject. Then about two weeks later, I, I met Stan and, um, I mean, and that was a film like very quickly. I knew that like, this was not just about um, an exercise. It was something that really resonated uh, with me and it was it felt like a film I had to make. So it winds up being quite an, an intimate film. And I'm curious, how did you set expectations with Stanley and Barbara for how invasive the process might ultimately be? Um, well, I, I hope it wasn't invasive. <laughs> you know, I guess... <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, um... You know, I don't think I did necessarily set any uh, expectations. I mean, you just kind of do it. Um, um, and I hope that they don't, I don't think that they necessarily felt that it was invasive. Um, um, I'd certainly, I'd say it's intimate. Um, um, but I think that's, I think there's a, just something about the way that you carry yourself and as a filmmaker and like the way that, um, the way that you approach something and approach people that makes the difference between whether it's intimate and whether it's invasive, you know, um, certainly if I ever felt that it was invasive, I wouldn't be there. You know, these are people that I care very deeply about. Um, and I think they know that and they knew it, they knew it at the, certainly at the time that I was filming and, I don't think, yeah, I think it was just something that, that you, that kind of happens in terms of, uh, where it goes. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would shy away from the word invasive as much as possible. So, yeah, I guess, I mean, invasive in the sense that people that aren't used to having cameras around might be caught a little bit off guard by just what it feels like to have cameras in their house and following them around. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. I think, I mean, and I think, I think, I think that is, that is very hard. And I think a lot of filmmakers don't fully understand it. I have a couple of times just for that reason, um, have said to, you know, I've sort of been at times have, 
I'm trying to think when and how, but the few times that, that other people have filmed me, you know, I've been very, you know, I've, I, I realize that it can, it can be very hard. Um, you know, I think for different people, it's, it can be different things. Stan is, is more, is more sort of naturally a performer in a sense. Um, even though obviously so much of the film and comes from him actually not performing, you know, there, there's not much filter between, uh, there's not much difference between Stan as a performer, quote unquote, and Stan as a person. Um, there's almost no, it's, it's very consciously not a film and not a person where, you know, he changes into a Superman outfit and becomes a different person. You know, he, he puts on his, his out, his, um, his strongman shirt and it's very much the same shirt that he wears um, on a day-to-day basis. So, um, but that said, there's something about his personality, which is more naturally, um, open to the camera. I think, you know, Barbara is someone who's a little bit more protective of those spaces. And yeah. And sort of the irony is of course that she's the model, um, you know, in her background, but yeah, I think that you, you find a way, um, you find a way that it becomes comfortable, um, you know, for everyone. And it's not just about the choices I make. It's also about the choices they make. Uh, and you, I never, as a filmmaker, um, I never forget that, you know, the people in the film have a lot of agency too. You know, it's not just about me filming certain moments. You know, there's certainly things that, you know, if someone's not comfortable with something being filmed, the bottom line is it, it won't get filmed. You know, people will, um, people will disappear. Uh, and you see that a lot of times in other films or other times when I've shot for other people that the, whatever the environment is, has not been, is not right for the subject. So only certain things that the subject wants on camera gets, get on camera. Yeah. I can see Stanley being kind of a perfect documentary subject in that uh, his thought bubbles are kind of out loud and he's, he's almost like constantly narrating his own thoughts. Yes. I mean, it's also, I, I think it's something deeper though than just, and just sort of narrating his life in a way. I mean, like I could watch Stan in a supermarket and he could not say a word. I could just watch him shop for vegetables and it would be fascinating. Um, I really was just, just, you could, you can see the choices that he makes in life, um, in a certain, way that is not always apparent in other people's lives. And it's just, it's just something mundane, something without dialogue with him can be really revealing. Yeah. There's something, there's something in just the way that he carries himself and the way that feelings show up on his face that, that make him a really special person to be in a film, I think. From a pure viewing perspective, and I don't know what your shooting ratio would have been. It reads as a film where you spent a lot of time with them. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you guys negotiate when you came by, how often you came, came by, what kind of settings were appropriate? Like, how was that handled? The actual ratio was about 200, it was about 220, 230 hours or so of footage, which in today's standards is actually not that much. You know, sort of the, the, it's particularly for this kind of film, which is a very pure verite film. The classic films of this genre, the one, you know, the mid sixties, um, uh, films that I think that this film comes out of that tradition. Um, those shooting ratios were often like around a hundred to one, something like that. Um, so this isn't that far off from that. Often these days you hear shooting ratios much, much higher. Like people are shooting five, six hundred hours often. Um, which is very, to me, like very, um, 
Yeah, it's it, that's a lot of footage, um, and particularly with the footage, the 220 hours that we had, I didn't feel like there was a lot of there wasn't a lot that could immediately be thrown away. It was actually a very selected uh, 220 hours. There's maybe 20 hours or so that I knew immediately was not going to be in the film because they involved, like, say, a plot point or something that didn't that didn't develop. But there really wasn't much when Stan was on camera that that didn't have the potential um, to be there. In terms of in terms of the the second part of the question, there wasn't a lot of negotiation about it. A lot of it was was sort of silent negotiation. I was in contact with Stan a lot during the course of filming. Um, I mean, I would talk to him every night on the phone, and I would talk to Barbara every day on the phone. So I was aware of you know the general currents that were going on in their lives, and sometimes it was tied to a particular event, like, okay, I know you have a show on this Saturday. Um, I'm going to come down and film the show, and I'm also going to come down and film, um, you know, five days before the show, or we're going to film the lead-up to it, so that he was just generally aware. But I think some of it, too, is just setting a regular practice um, where you're showing up. And so that becomes what's standard and that becomes what's accepted. Uh, and that was something that I did regularly. You know, sometimes it's good to film, you know, when there's an event and it's good to film in a narrative sense of like leading up to the event. But I also find it can be useful too to film when there is no event, right? <laughs> you know, when, when we don't know where it's going to go. Um, and we don't know like, okay, you don't have a preconceived notion in your head of like, Oh, I'm filming today to get the part a of what's going to become part B, C and D. Right. So, um, a lot of it, yeah. That, so I would just say that it was a combination of of saying, okay, these are the things that I know are happening, and we can film around them. But also, um, just also, also just setting up um, an expect, not even so much an expectation, but setting up an understanding that we were um, that I was going to be around, and um, um, and also at the same time being sensitive to not being around too much. Right. So making sure that there were breathing spaces for them. And it wasn't like it wasn't like, oh, this guy's moved in with us. Um, um, but but also cre helping to create a world where a, a filming world where um, when something did happen, it wasn't going to feel like um, me arriving in a helicopter to film it um, out of nowhere, but that it was just going to be part of the process that I was already there. Yeah, my, my theme for this season of podcast is trust and developing the kind of trust you need to make a documentary of this sort, which is so intimate. And I'm curious, when it comes down to it, is it you have to rely on your instincts as a human and not your instincts as a filmmaker when it comes to... Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the most important thing. Was it a process of reading body language and eye contact? Like, when did you know when you maybe had been around too much or did that happen? It's a couple of things. It is it is certainly reading body language and certainly reading eye contact and all the subtle cues that happen in any social situation. Um, it's also sometimes, and I say this to the filmmakers out there, it's also sometimes paying attention to those and it's also sometimes being aware that they're there and pushing past them or ignore not I wouldn't say ignoring them. You never you shouldn't ever ignore, but you want to be a good guest. I mean, and that's the way I saw myself in their lives as I was, I was a guest in their lives. You know, I recognize that it's, it's someone else's life 
and someone else's world that I'm a part of. So you want to be sensitive to that. At sometimes though, um, you're also a filmmaker. I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, we're gone at the first sign that like someone was, was, didn't want me there. Sometimes I would, I would just step back for a minute, you know, and say, okay, let's just see how this plays out. Cause you know, one of the things you realize in this kind of filmmaking is that feelings change fairly regularly, right? That, that someone can be annoyed at one sense, one moment. And then five minutes later, they're really thankful that you're there. So I can't say that there's a general rule so much as just both being extremely sensitive to what's going on, but also for me, at least it was not running away at the first sign of like troubled waters, right? Being willing to stay in it and, and being willing to see what happens. It sounds like in a way you're saying that there's an almost an emotional fitness that a filmmaker has to have just to kind of survive such a long process because there are human beings on both sides. It's going to be a winding road. There's going to be ups and downs and you've got to be emotionally fit to take the entirety of that ride. Yeah, I think so. I think you'll probably make whatever film your fitness allows, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like you could be less fit and like you would leave at the first sign of someone saying, Oh no, I'm not comfortable. Or you wouldn't, um, um, or you would stay far longer than you should have. And that would wreck the relationship. And then the film would stop. Um, so you would, your fitness level, your, your emotional quote unquote fitness level will probably determine the kind of film that you end up making. So tell me about the mechanics of actually shooting. I'm going to take a stab and say this was just you with a uh, camera and mic on board or like, how did you? No, I always use a sound person. It's not, not I probably 80% of the footage was done with me and a sound person. Um, and that is, I believe the best way to film because they're distinct, right? If you're filming with a camera on uh, with a microphone on the camera, your tendency is going to be to film the person who's talking um, more, you know, most of the time because you're worried about getting decent dialogue from that person with the onboard camera mic. Um, that's not always the most important thing in the room. Often the story is with the other people in the room. And so you really want to be able to separate having um, recording decent sound and also visually interpreting what's happening in the scene. Um, I would always recommend having a sound person I, that may change be a little bit different now. I mean, you know, this film was made a long time ago. It's me and a sound person wired together. Um, we can only record two tracks. Um, you, you, I might approach it a little bit differently now. The other reason I think to have a sound person is, is, is actually again for that emotional fitness. You know, um, it's nice to have someone who has a slightly different perspective on what is happening in a scene than you do. You know, literally it's a different perspective because the sound person's not seeing the same angle that you are. And they're often three or four steps back from the action than you are as a camera person. As a camera person, my instincts are often to try to get close. I mean, you shoot wide shots, but you also, um, 
you're also trying to get close often in a lot of ways. And sometimes it's for practical reasons. Sometimes it's for, uh, directing reasons, quote unquote, you know, in terms of the way that your, your energy is interacting with the, the people that you're filming's energy. I think that having another person there who has a slightly different perspective can really actually be helpful after the fact when you're talking to the person, um, when you're sort of debriefing what was just the scene that you just saw, that can be really helpful. And especially in a world that was as chaotic at times as Stan's world, um, it was it was very helpful to me to have to have another person there. So, over what period of time was was this filmed? Um, it was basically three years of filming, um, uh, with the first year being the most intense. It was about, um, as I remember, I think it was about 120 days total, and probably about 80 of them in the first year. And then after the next couple years, it was kind of like, it was a little bit more geared towards when I sensed things were happening um, after that. So as the film moves forward, the dynamics between Stanley and Barbara start to take more of a central role. I'm, I'm curious, did you expect that? And were there any obstacles to surmount in terms of getting them to share that sort of difficult relationship dynamic in front of you with your, with your sound guy there. Yeah. I didn't expect, um, ahead of time that the, that the narrative would be necessarily, I didn't expect ahead of time that the relationship between Stan and Barbara would become the name main narrative. Um, but you know, one thing I did early on was, um, even before I started to shoot was I remember writing out a possible treatment of what this story was about. And it was sort of just identifying. It wasn't like, this is where this story's going, but it was sort of identifying where the, the movement in the film could be. And that it was in there, you know, it was in that early treatment to, you know, in a very not specific way. It wasn't particular like, Oh, these events are going to happen or this relationship's going to have troubles. But, um, there was elements that you could see going back at that initial, that sort of initial treatment, those initial ideas that I'd written down, that all those elements that I had sensed from being there a week, maybe, and this was just going without a camera. I went for, um, I mean, I met Stan, um, it was like June of, of the, the first year that we filmed. And then I think a couple times in July, I went down to his house and just hung out with him and just got a sense. I think one day I took, I went and took still photographs, um, and then started filming, uh, uh, for an actual film in August. I, you know, those ideas that I had sensed that were under the surface, they were, they were in the, in what I had written, you know? So, um, I guess there was always some part of me that, that, knew there was that that might become a storyline. So it sounds like uh, the treatment in many ways is you putting yourself on alert for things that might happen and that you want to make sure as a filmmaker, you're prepared to pick up on. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I mean, I think as a filmmaker, you probably have pretty good instincts for things that might happen. You know, so much of, of narrative filmmaking, I think is about compression in a way you're trying to compress the real world, which isn't narrative in, in most ways into something that resembles a story. And that requires some degree of compression. And I think really the process of writing a treatment down was less about identifying 
possible things to look for and more just like that very first edit in a way. It was that very first like, okay, this is, this is the frame that I might work in. So let me uh, pivot to Stanley. I, I think what is so compelling to me is not the strongman shtick, but it seems like it's un, an unflagging belief in himself, although he does have moments of quiet insecurity. What was it that really drew you to him in terms of just who he was as a person? Gosh, um, it's almost indescribable in a way. It was just something where we met and I connected with him. I mean, certainly I saw him and I see him as an artist. You know, I see him as someone who is approaching his work and his, his ambitions and his, um, you know, everything that he's trying to do, he approaches with the same spirit as, as an artist. He's willing to fail, you know, in a way that it's not simply about performance. You know, it's not simply about like putting on a show in any way. And for, for him, it's not a good show unless there's some risk of failure, you know, and, um, and that's an artistic mindset. You know, that's someone who's really willing to challenge themselves as much as they're challenging a piece of metal. They're challenging themselves. I think. That certainly drew him to me. I think then also that this was all happening in a world that was clearly not able to fully see him was really, um, really resonated with me. I mean, I, that resonates with a lot of artists. You know, so many artists, we all struggle with like, how, how do we get our work out there? Is anyone ever going to see what we do? You know, that challenge is so tied to what Stan does. I mean, here he's bending the hardest thing in the world that he can do is spend this penny, which, you know, literally there's probably no one else in the world who can do it. Maybe there's one, who knows, maybe there's someone in some other country who can do it, who, you know, but we're talking about something, a very small number of people have that ability to bend a, a penny in their fingers. Uh, and yet no one can see it, right? It's, it's the hardest thing. And it's also the smallest thing. Yeah. I think it is compelling to see how he strives for perfection. He's taking it very seriously. It's not, it's not a stunt to him. This is something, this is what he does and he takes it very seriously and he wants to be great at it. He's also actually great at being his own Barker. And I think some of the more compelling scenes are when he's trying to teach Barbara how to be his hype man, if you will. Yeah. And she does, she never quite does it as well as he does. And he's trying to find a way to communicate to her, eh, you can do a little bit better. It, that that seems fundamentally who Stan is. Stan is both a great announcer for himself. When it comes down to it, he really is a great, you know, when he, and especially at that scene at the end where he's announcing for Barbara, you know, you can see he is actually a really good announcer for other people too. Um, but yet he doesn't trust his own ability to communicate. Um, and that's why he feels he needs an announcer. Right. He does struggle with communication to other people because he struggles with communication in a world that does not hear him in a lot of ways and does not see him in a lot of ways. And so he knows that about the outside world, but he so he needs an announcer. And yet he says he actually is a very good announcer. And then you have someone like Barbara who, um, you know, doesn't seem to have a voice to the world. Um who doesn't seem to be very good at announcing. Um, but yet when she actually does need to announce for herself, she does a pretty good job of it. Yeah, it, it's interesting how Stanley is so charismatic in the most unexpected ways and kind of philosophical. The one line that just, you must have gotten shivers when you were filming it, when he says, you can bend metal, but you can't bend people. And I felt like that said so much about him and his life and his situation and his view of people. Yes, Stan absolutely has a way with words that um, can be very profound. And 
again, it's like in the context of someone who is not confident that, that the way that they speak will be heard. Um, so that makes it, I think in a lot of ways can make it sort of doubly resonant, but yes, that line, when he said, you know, you can bend people, but you can bend metal, but you can't bend people. I, I remember looking at over at the sound person and, and just double checking that there wasn't like a hit on the wireless or something at that point, you know, I'm curious, Stanley is such a character and kind of over the top and in some ways it's strange in other ways it can be a little bit unflattering and this film could have easily exploited him kind of as an entertaining oddity and you steered clear of that and really viewed him with a lot of dignity um and i'm wondering like was that something that you were aware of as a filmmaker that i need to be on the right side of this line I think when you make a film about someone, to some degree, you're making the film about the person. To some degree, you're making the film about yourself and um, or about other people. And you're making it for reasons that maybe you don't fully understand always. But if you're going to spend a lot of time with someone, you have to respect them. You know, it's very hard to spend years with someone if you don't respect them. I mean, I, I, I deeply respect Stan as a person. Um, I, I love him. You know, he's a guy who I really care about. It's, it's, I think it's like any intimate relationship. You're, you're aware of someone's positives and you're aware of other things in their lives too. I was conscious of it for sure. Um, but at the same time, I think it's something that just sort of comes naturally when you're making this kind of film. Um, I mean, I suppose, I think that there probably were versions of this film that maybe someone else might have made that were less intimate and also by that nature, maybe more carnivalesque. Um, I mean, I, I like carnivals actually, but you know, maybe more, maybe where the sideshow element was more elevated, you know, I had one line I remember thinking a lot when I was editing. Uh, and that's, you know, when you're making a film, you know, you have multiple opportunities to make choices. I and mean, sometimes you make the choices when you're shooting and you get those choices wrong. Um, or you make the choices in your editing and, you know, you hopefully you get those, hopefully able to balance all your choices out to some degree. When Stan was in England, which is this trip for, for people who haven't seen the film where he's very much a fish out of water, um, for, for most of the trip. And, um, I remember one scene we had just landed and we were coming back from the airport and we were going in one of those traffic circles that they have in London. And the driver in an English accent says, um, this is, this is whatever circus this is. And, and Stan's reaction, which was just so, genuine and honest was, um, oh, do they have elephants here? You know, it was the little, the little boy in him. If it's going to play to an audience as like, oh, look at Stan so that he doesn't know what this traffic circle is and he's going to say something funny like that. You know, I was sensitive that that element was both not what I wanted in terms of the way I was connecting with Stan, but also it was going to wear thin from an audience point of view. You know, that joke you can play that joke a couple of times, but hopefully you have to get beyond that. So I feel like the film has some of that element in it because it's very much part of Stan's world. But I often did evaluate things afterwards like, okay, wait a second. Is there something more here than just this one little moment that may get some laughs at the moment, but doesn't resonate something more than that? You mentioned earlier that this is a verite film, and I, I really do feel like it's an excellent example of a verite film in that Every scene just feels very organic. That said, there's one scene where it kind of unfolded almost in narrative fashion, and it's a scene in a truck 
I believe Stan and his brother have a few drinks in them. And Barbara is in the middle and they're listening to a song in the radio and they're both just belting out this song. And Barbara just looks incredibly trapped. And it seemed almost like a metaphorical scene, like trapped in the truck, maybe trapped in this life. And I'm curious, was there anything that you saw in that scene that made you want to use it particularly? I mean, it was just a powerful scene, you know? I mean, as much as it's a verite film and I don't, did not shape what was happening in their lives. I also don't want to shape the way audiences see the film. And I think the way that you saw that scene is incredibly powerful. And, um, I mean, some of that is the way I saw that scene too. Um, it's not necessarily the only way to see that, that scene. Um, I'm sure people, other people out there might see the scene in other ways. Um, and sometimes those other ways can be even more interesting. You know, people have all kinds of ways of seeing things, which can be interesting. Um, what was happening was so small in a way. And what's happening on camera is so intense in a way. Um, but what was happening in, in the outside world, you might not have ever noticed. Um, I remember that scene went on for a very long time in real life. I mean, in reality, I mean, uh, it might have been an hour, that scene. And I remember afterwards putting the camera down and just being like, oh my, this was really intense. This was really powerful. And the sound person who was next to me had no idea. You know, they couldn't see it. Um, because we were outside the truck. They're just hearing this music blasting. I mean, they, they just saw it as like, oh, can we get home now? Like, there's nothing going on here. There's just three people sitting on a truck. I mean, the whole movie could be just based on that scene in a sense of just the dynamics that were happening between those three people and, and each of their differing needs at that time. Um, were so apparent, but it was only really apparent through the lens, um, more than it was apparent. Um, if you were, like I say, if you were 15 feet, 20 feet away from that truck, you would have seen nothing. Um, I don't think there was any question that that scene was, was not going to be in the movie. So one challenge of a, a documentary of this kind is there isn't necessarily a tidy ending. I'm, I'm curious, when did you know that you had enough material to tell the story that you wanted to tell? Well, I was never really sure. Uh, and that is a real challenge. I think anyone who makes this kind of film and makes it in what I would say a quote unquote honest way, meaning that you're not going into it with a preconceived notion or a preconceived um, story structure, you never really know. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, I say I shot for three years, but um, even after those three years, I was going back to film things if I was like, because I, I didn't edit this film. That was actually one of the challenges. I, one of the main challenges I had was, um, uh, I hate to date the film so much, but I, it was shot on DigiBeta, which was um, um, a form, a format that um, at the time was a, it was basically the best uh, standard definition format. At the time I was shooting, I was able to do it because uh, a friend of mine owned a DigiBeta camera and he gave me basically a deferred deal on, on using it from him. But the decks for the, those tapes were $50,000 at the time. And I didn't have anything near that to be able to afford to, to edit. Um, I couldn't even watch the material that I had shot. So for many years, the, Basically, the editing process was delayed while I saved up enough money to be able to to move the process forward. During that period, I was often going back to stands because I wasn't 100% confident that I had an ending or not. You know, there was a gut feeling, but you never really know until you actually finish a film 
that you have the ending. So what let me feel I could go back less and sort of let go of it was just the sense that I had seen everything in that world. Um, I remember for much of those, those years, um, every time I went, I would see something new. And sometimes it was something new, like I say, on some super dramatic event, a, a show, or it could be something in their personal relationship or their lives that, that seemed, oh, this is, this is incredibly you know, dramatic, or this moves the story forward leaps and bounds. And sometimes it was just learning something new in something small way, like stand in the supermarket. And I was like, oh, this is really powerful in some way that I'm not sure I expected, but there's something here. Um, but every day, every time I would film, it was like, okay, the story is moving forward in some way, or my understanding is moving forward. And then I remember maybe there was three or four times that I went, and at the end of the day, I felt like, you know what, I've seen this before. And that was sort of a cue to me that, that there, you know, that the filming process was, was nearing its end. Did you wind up getting funding for the film? And if so, at what point? Oh, no. Oh, no, never did. Um, you know, there's not a lot of, it's, it's one of the challenges, I think, of, of, documentary filmmaking, particularly these days, is that, I say even these days, is that as a first-time filmmaker uh, who's not making an overtly political film, um, who's not making a film tied to a particular you know, demographic or, um, you know, any of those things that, that there are funding sources for, there's not a foundation for for strong men in New Jersey, so like that's that's like that, that's sort of the uh, the uh, that was a challenge. It, it, it underscores, you know, Stan's struggle to be supported is maybe not any different than than the same struggle that I had. Uh, and of course, the other thing too is if someone's a celebrity, it's much easier to get funding. Stan, of course, is not a celebrity, so I mean, I think I still have. You know, financially, it's still lost money more than it's made money, and it ever made money. Um, but I'm, I'm, there wouldn't be a moment that I would ever say that it wasn't worth it, you know? Yeah, I'm very proud that, you know, I made those choices to make it in spite of that, um, in spite of not having money or in spite of it not looking, I think for a long time for many people, it didn't really look like a film. Um, it just, it's very hard, I think, when you're, making a verite film for especially a, a character driven one that um for people to see it as a film rather than just footage and um it's it's it takes it takes a lot it takes fairly far into the process where where often people can understand it as a film and can understand what you're aiming for um so yeah i mean that's just the nature of this kind of filmmaking i mean i suppose you know it does get easier. Um, and I mean, and also it goes in waves too, I would say. I mean, I think that there are periods where this kind of filmmaking and character focused filmmaking have been more popular than other times. And, um, you know, there was a time, I don't remember when it was, I don't even know if they're still doing it, but I think Tribeca Film Festival at one point had started a fund for character driven films and, um, Someone may correct me out there if I'm wrong, but I vaguely think that maybe around like 2013, 2014, there was a couple of years where Tribeca had a fund for that could cover um, a, a film like this. Um, and I think that's a good thing, just just because I think anytime there's a diversity of types of filmmaking, of types of subjects, 
it's helpful. You know, it's helpful to the filmmaking world, and I think it's helpful to the audience world too. So along those lines, I looked at your IMDb page, and it's impossible not to note that of your many credits, there's only this one documentary film. And I'm wondering if that's a reflection of just the human toll of making a documentary, both the emotional and psychic energy, but also probably going into debt a little bit. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. I came out of strongman in, in debt, um, but it was also not just from the film. It was also I spent uh, about two or three years making sure that the film could get seen. And that took a lot. That was a very long process, too. You know, I, I did the film one slam dance, which is a real festival, and it was out South by Southwest. Um, I think maybe it was just the misfortune of, of the year it was on the festival circuit was uh, uh, 2009, which was a the beginnings of a recession. And I think that um, buyers were a little bit wary of things. And also this is, again, it comes down to some of the same reasons it never really attracted institutional support was from the distribution side of, of documentary filmmaking. There's definitely um, a bias and it's not necessarily, it's, I don't mean this as, as an unfounded bias. I mean, it, from a business point of view, it makes smart sense is that you find films that have built in audiences. So, you know, if you have a film which um, taps a celebrity or have a film which uh, taps a particular particular social movement or something like that, and this wasn't a film that really attracted a lot of distributor attention, even though it attracted some great critical attention and fellow filmmakers were really enthused by it, but it didn't attract business attention. And I wasn't going to just let it go. I mean, I felt that, like, look, I had spent so much, so many years, so much sweat equity in terms of making the film. I wanted it to be seen. I spent about two or three years and after the film, um, making sure it got seen and had built a theatrical release for the film myself, um, really just by cold calling theaters and building off a review. Good. You know, I get a positive review in one city and then I would send it to the next city that I wanted to go to and really just kind of like bootstrapping it, like spit and bubble gum in terms of pushing that rock uphill until it got to a point where I felt like, okay, I can, it now exists in this, in this world and I, I can let it go. So, you know, you, you finish that and you're tired. And, um, and I think there's some natural feeling for me that I could make another film, but I don't want to make another film unless I know that it resonates with me to the same degree that if I have to go through those things, um, I will, there will be other films at some point, you know, I, I, I'm sure of that I'm, I'm not just making one film in my life. I'm wondering, and you can defer this question if you'd like, how much did you have into this film financially? It's hard to say. Um, I don't really remember exactly. I mean, I would say maybe $300,000, something like that. I was working as a cameraman and, you know, was making a decent living from that. I mean, that money, I had saved up maybe about $50,000 when I had started this film. That money went pretty quick. By year two or three of the film, I was, I was in debt. I was in actually a good amount of debt. Like I had about $50,000 of credit card debt at that point. Then in 2004, um, when the Iraq war started, I, I don't know if you remember, there was, um, the government had put out 
it was like a, a brief moment in pop culture where, at least in New York particularly, these cards were being sold on all the street. And like Saddam Hussein was the ace of spades and it had the different ministers in different positions on the playing deck. And I had made a parody of those that had Bush administration figures on those, on the, in a deck. And the cards did very well. And so I sold, I sold about 300,000 copies of those playing cards. And that ended up financing me finishing the film. You had an entrepreneurial streak on top of the artistic streak. That's that's a rare combo. I mean, I think all artists are entrepreneurs. You know, uh, I mean, the goal isn't financial, but in spirit, we're all entrepreneurs. This is a question I'm really curious about. Um, 230 hours of footage that I would imagine, in many ways, is substantially similar. What is the process of taking 230 hours down to two hours? I had an editor for the first. Um, year or so year like um maybe it was a little bit less than a year uh jonathan oppenheim who is one of the great documentary editors um he cut paris is burning and lots lots of other films so he did the first round of selects on it and just even watching you know the footage i mean i think watching this the the raw footage took about maybe five months, something like that. It took a long time just to watch all the footage. And so he did the initial pass of selects. And um, I remember him saying to to me at the time that of all the films he had worked on at, at that point, um, he had never selected so much from the raw footage. I'm pretty sure at that point, Jonathan had, I had run out of money basically. And so I couldn't afford Jonathan anymore. And so I, I think by the time the, the, we had index cards, I was basically editing on my own at that point. So then it was just using some of that database entries as sort of rough templates for where the order of scenes might go. And then you just reducing and reducing and trying and adding things back and just trying to keep find the line that's going to get through the film. I mean, I think I'm probably a decent editor from a direct from a directing point of view, but unlike shooting, you know, editing has no adrenaline. <laughs> you know, like, you know, when you're out um filming something, you know, you're connecting with other people, you're you're connecting with the world. Um there's an excitement even when nothing's happening. There's an there's an excitement that's very tangible I feel like when you're filming. Um when you're editing, you're very alone, you know, and that's that's a challenge in its own right. You know, that's its own sort of like a constant feeling of writer's block. You know, I might struggle if I start the day at nine in the morning, I might struggle till four in the afternoon looking at essentially a blank page. And then it's only from like four to uh, maybe four to five thirty that there's like this rush of uh, uh, ideas that are translating into actual progress. And then and then, you know, six o'clock, it's that magic is gone. And then the next day, that same struggle starts over again. Um, for me, you know, for me, it's not, it's, it can be a very challenging process editing. Um, uh, and I think it's also challenging too, when you've shot your own material, at least for me, I'm very aware when I'm looking at my, my own photography of the choices that I make, you know, I'm very aware of, of seeing, oh, I panned here when, like actually the story is more over here. Um, you know, I was focused on this character when actually something else was happening or I thought this scene was an ending rather than a beginning, you know, um, you know, the, all those things, you know, it, it becomes like uh, sort of like being in therapy a little bit. Cause you're really, you are watching your choices. Um, you know, the choices that you make when you're filming are, 
often reflections of the way that you approach something. So it can be a little bit unnerving sometimes, like looking at your own choices that closely um, over such a long time. Yeah, I can only imagine. I, I have shouted at myself and looking at my footage and saying, no, <laughs> don't, <Yeah. laughs> don't turn the camera that way. And, and there's nothing you can do. It's you're talking right. to somebody in the past. So, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like the, um, you know, like one example of that, say, it's like that for the first scene in the movie, um, you know, it's it's uh, what for people who haven't seen the film. It's about it's, it, the movie opens with Stan talking on the phone to someone trying to get a truck for a stunt and the um the the person doesn't understand who he is and calls him by his wrong name and it's a very like it's a it's a very stand kind of moment in a way um and you know if you look at that scene it's all close-ups um and the reason the reason why it's all close-ups is that I, when I shot it, I never would have imagined it as the first scene of a movie. You know, I was shooting it as much more as leading up to an event um, that would have come later in a film. And so there weren't a lot of like, there weren't traditional establishing shots, um, quote unquote, when I was editing the movie. It felt right to me. And it absolutely to this day feels like the, a right opening and that it really sort of does encapsulate a lot of what's happening. You make those choices and then you and then you live with them um, and you find a way to make it work. And, and in some ways, I actually really like that there's not traditional establishing shots uh, to start the film. To me, it's sort of like a, a gutsy choice. You know, had I recognized that scene as the beginning of the film when I shot it, I, I'm sure I would have shot wide shots. Conversely, the scene that is at the end of the film, I actually did think while I was shooting it that that might be the ending of the film. And that is why there is a wide shot there. You know, there's that wide shot where I back up and you see the shed and the, and the lights on it and Stan and Barbara in, in silhouette rehearsing. And that's because when I was filming that, I had this gut feeling like, oh, this is, I don't know if this is actually the ending, but I could, this might be, you know, there was some gut sense that that was, that there was something happening here that, that tied together a lot of the story. Zachary, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this film. You've been so open about the process, and uh, I, I think it's one of those great video documents. And I use the word document because I like to think in 50 years somebody will watch this film and there will be something timeless about it. And I think that's got to be satisfying as a filmmaker to have made something of that nature. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially having spent so long on this film – and also being so unsure at times whether anyone would see it, um, it really makes a difference to me to know that it it does live on in people, and that it's it's a it's a sticky film, I think, in the sense that it sticks to people. People think about it, and it stays with them um, for whatever reason. And yeah, that that matters a lot to me. I mean, just the fact that you know you're calling me x many years later you know it's like oh that's really a blessing you know that's really like it's a nice reminder i don't think about the film that much anymore i thought about this film every waking moment for for over a decade you know it's so much of my life was focused on on this film i feel really lucky that it it lives in other people now and i feel like it can live in other people so if this film resonates with people in in 50 years from now i mean that would be wonderful Thanks again to Zachary Levy. 
His film, Strongman, can be seen on a number of streaming services. But as always, I'm going to point you to the free ones because I want you to see this film. So head on over to Tubi TV or Pluto TV. Take your pick. They both have you covered. Join me next time when I talk to Phil Wall, a filmmaker who discovered in the midst of grieving a family tragedy that he was living inside his own documentary film. See you then.